this is Joseph Vardy Presents. Um, thank you all for being with us today. I want to welcome Dr. Melvin Morris and Sharon Milliman, and we're waiting for Dr. Jeffrey Smith to join us. Um, Sharon Milliman has written a book called A Song in the Wind and um, had a near-death experience where she went to heaven. And, um, and also we're doing some cards that is, I've copied her book cover, and we're doing some cards on the very positive side of, you know, um, when you lose somebody and you end up reading cards three or four weeks or a month later, after you read the cards, you feel as bad as you did when you first lost the one. So we wanted to really come up with a positive card and a card that certainly says we're sorry, but more oh, of a like positive a really way. One. I think I've been on it before. Hey, Joseph. So, uh-huh. Hello? Can you, can you hear us? I can hear you. Okay, perfect. So, Sharon, um, I want to talk to you about your life review. Sharon, I know that you were in heaven and you had a life review. And tell us about that. Well, when I was in heaven, um, I was standing with my two brothers and this beautiful, huge presence that was just pouring all of this love out on me, and I knew that this presence was the presence of God, and all I felt was love, and there was no judgment at all, and I saw what looked like a movie screen, and it was, I could see on the movie screen uh, what looked like, well, there was a black and white um, movie reel, an old-fashioned movie reel. And I could see um, pictures of my life from wow. the time I was born until that particular time that I had died from the lightning. And it was everything that I had ever said or done. And it was um, very, very fast, very quick. And there was no judgment. All I felt was love. And there were um, lots of people um, surrounding me from all different time periods, and they I knew who they were, and they knew who I was, but I didn't know where I knew them from, uh-huh. and all these people were gathered around me for support and love, and it was just, it seemed like it happened within a blink of an eye, and it was over, and wow. that's when I learned that there was no judgment, none whatsoever. The one thing that I want to to talk about today, especially as I remember you telling me that you, when you sat down, you had these two six-foot-something guys, blonde, beautiful men, who you thought were angels at first, and then you you said you had said were your brothers, and they had yes. said you were your brothers, and you were kind of in shock because didn't you lose them when they were young? Yes, but they died when they were babies. And they actually greeted me when I got there. I mean, this is what I want people to know, the audience, is, you know, I've heard this by so many people, that um, if you do lose a baby or you lose someone, they actually grew up in heaven. And um, and it's just just so phenomenal to to know that. Um, I had Diana White Eagle, who's off today. She's sick, and she was contacting a friend of mine who had lost a baby, and and she 
connected with the baby, the mother did, and it was just phenomenal. So I, I just want, um, I want you guys to know that there is no death. And if you lose a loved one, I mean, however, a young, old, middle-aged, however, they are, they don't die. You do, you, they, they do stick around and they are with you, always. There is actually, uh, when I was there, there was actually, I had seen a, a building um, where uh, an area, not just a building, but a, several places, areas, where young ch- children and babies go, uh-huh. and they are attended to by angels and other loved ones. Uh-huh. I love it. They grow. Um, uh-huh. They do grow up, and they play, and... And they learn and they grow. And I remember and they do grow you, up. I remember you telling me that when you went to heaven that everything had a sound. I mean, Doctor yeah. Morris, is this exciting? <laughs> everything had a sound. It it was like when the wind blew. She said it was like a. Well, you you, you tell us it was like a fine tuned orchestra. Yes, the the leaves had a sound. The flowers had a sound. The grass had a sound. Um, even the colors had their own sound. Everything had a sound. And when you put each individual sound together, the rocks, the water, everything, and you put each individual sound together, and it was like a magnificent orchestra. And that's um, why she named the book A Song in the Wind. Yes. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful, that's such a beautiful metaphor. You know, uh, Sharon, a child once uh, told me something very similar. Um, he uh, had a near-death experience, and he told me uh, that he saw a light during his experience, but the light was a sound, and it was the sound of light. It was the sound of everything, just as, as, as you're saying, everything on this earth, everything that we perceive, the, the trees, the the flowers, the sidewalk, the uh, the, the walls, uh, everybody that we know and, and everybody that we don't know, you know, the seven billion people here on Earth, each has a unique sound. Uh, just as, as you're saying uh, that uh, you, you perceived up in heaven. And he said it was the sound of life, and it rang so loud. But it's interesting. What he said then was so profound. He said... It rang so loud, but the unaware couldn't hear it, and the aware only thought that they'd heard it. So, you know, we have to pay attention, I think, to the sound that you're talking about. We need to pay attention to that sound uh, in our ordinary life as well. Are you there, guys? I'm I'm here. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Doctor Morse. Well, that, that's uh, I, you know, I, I, I wonder what you know. What, what is Sharon's? Uh, you know, I wonder if you have a comment on on that child's experience. Uh, could you repeat your question, please? I. I, I just I was, his experience was so similar to yours. I, it just it just struck me. Uh, that uh, this sound of uh, of everything in heaven is something that we can perhaps uh, perceive here on earth as well, uh, if we pay attention. And and maybe you found that in uh, your work as a medium. 
you know, I'd like to jump in here for a moment since we're talking about sounds. This is Dr. Smith. Uh, several years ago, I was uh, invited to go to a, a gong concert, the musical instruments that people play that resonate in certain frequencies. And they, uh, I ended up buying a gong, and it's called the Jupiter Gong. And the reason it's called the Jupiter Gong is it is in the same frequency that the planet Jupiter resonates at, that all of our planets also have a unique signature frequency. What is so fascinating to me about this is that these frequencies also match up with emotions. So, for example, the, I bought the Jupiter Gong, and I play it in my practice on occasion to help people increase and resonate with the vibration of trust. Yeah. and to be able to open up. Uh, so each of the planets has a primary unique signature. The one for Earth happens to be love. So well, if, we can, if we can tune into that frequency uh, that our planet is resonating in, then, of course, we would feel that unique and uh, be able to dwell there as well. Well, I found well, out when I... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Sharon. I found out when I came back from my experience that um, I used to have these little bells, um, the uh, little tuning forks, and I would play those because they sounded like the angel bells that I heard um, and that I hear very frequently when angels are around. I hear these high-pitched sound, a high-pitched, tinkling sound, and I know that an angel is around when I hear that. And I also noticed that um, when I see a rainbow, uh, each color has a uh, sound. Um, I learned yes. that when I was in heaven. Um, each particular color of the rainbow has a vibrational sound, and it was amazing that I learned that when I was there. <laughs> so... Wow. It's not just a color, it's a sound. There is a sound. You know, um, Jeffrey and, and Dr. Morris, Sharon, was, which made me really feel special because she was saying that she saw, when she was in heaven, she saw people dressed up with formals and tuxedos. And she was, <laughs> and you tell them, Sharon, about the food, the table, and all that stuff you saw. Um, there was a building um, I saw inside this. This building, the building was made of alabaster, and inside the building, there was um, some kind of celebration going on, and in inside, it was very ornately decorated. Um, there were ex exquisite paintings on the walls. The marble floor was polished like glass. There was a pink. Um, of rug on the floor, there was chandelier in the ceiling, there was people dressed up in these formal, uh, the women dressed in these dresses, every color of the rainbow, and they had jewels to match, and the men were dressed in fancy suits or tuxes. There was somebody sitting at a grand piano over in the corner, and on the piano was a golden candelabra and a crystal vase with roses spilling out, and um, on the other oh. side of the room, there was um, a table with expensive linen, and there was it was just heavily laden with meats 
trays, silver trays with meats and cheeses and fruits, and there were flowers all over the table that were every color of the dresses that the women were wearing. And it was so magnificent. It was so like nothing, nothing I have ever seen before. And there was a butler walking around holding a tray to handing out champagne glasses. And some of the people were laughing and talking, and some of the people were dancing to the music of the piano. And it was definitely a festive occasion. I had no idea what it was, but it was so elaborate and so... The detail was so intricate and so... It was so beautiful. And you know, I was so happy to hear this because my mother, even 100 years old, ate like a longshoreman. And, <laughs> and, and then she'd say, how about dessert? I mean, I never saw anyone with an appetite like hers. And so I said, I hope there's food in heaven because she would, I mean, and Sharon says, you don't live to eat or you don't have to eat to live. No, you, you don't eat because you Because you actually enjoy it and that's what you do. How exciting is that? Anyway, Sharon, I wanted to I wanted to talk about your book. You have a book called A Song A Song in the Wind and um and it's a story about your near death experience and we're gonna talk about that every time we're on the air. And I wanna turn this over to Doctor Morris and Jeffrey Smith about what they're doing right now. Go ahead, guys. Well let Doctor Morris take the lead. All right. Um, well, what I'd like to do is, is to pick up on what Sharon was talking about, is uh, when she uh, had her near-death experience, but then uh, discovered that she was able to hear angels uh, in her ordinary life, you know, in, 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 in the day-in and day-out life. And, uh, you know, uh, clearly uh, having the near-death experience uh, opened some channels uh, in uh, your psyche so that you could start to perceive uh, what was going on around us. But the, the, I think it's important to understand that, that, that we all have the capability of, uh, of, of hearing angels. I mean, you know, just as, as simple as that. And uh, I'll give a, a, just a, a brief example from my own life. Uh, my mother passed uh, about uh, just, it's been about, just about uh, two and a half years ago. And she told me uh, that she would communicate with me uh, by dimes, that there would be uh, dimes um, uh, would appear in my life at times when she felt uh, that uh, she needed, you know, that I needed her support or that I needed uh, uh, to, to hear from her or, uh, you know, I needed just that little nudge of love, uh, you know, that, that, that only a mother can give you. And, uh, and, and, and that certainly has happened. Uh, certainly, uh, I found uh, uh, this to be true, that uh, at crucial times in my life, uh, I find dimes on the ground or, you know, I'll find a diamond pocket that I don't remember putting there <laughs> I love it. Uh, or such as that. And I think that uh, the, the work that Dr. Smith is doing um, is, you know, he's actually teaching his uh, clients, his patients, how to sensitize themselves so that they too can uh, feel the embrace of their loved ones while we're still alive. You know, we don't have to wait until we die uh, to have uh, this uh, 
experience of encountering um, our, our loved ones who have passed. Uh, but uh, I, I think of Dr. Smith's work as unlocking the power of the near-death experience and bringing uh, the uh, the lessons of the near-death experience into our ordinary lives. And, and I wonder if you could comment on that, uh, Dr. Smith. Well, yeah, see, <clears throat> there's... You know, you're the expert on the transformation that people go through when they have a near-death experience or, or a death experience. Um, it's just fascinating that as we continue to push into this, there are a lot of people that believe that we'll be able to assist people in having that experience without having to go through something so dramatic. And that's what we're hoping to explore in the counseling milieu or in some form of life coaching is being able to help people uh, explore tapping into the dimensions beyond the one that we're walking and living and in all of our senses that there is a unique transformation that occurs just through having discussions like this, reading books like the ones that you guys have written and having afterlife contact and connections with departed loved ones, uh, whether they were friend or foe, uh, does have a transformative, transforming effect uh, on the people who are willing to open up to that. So we're still we're still just pushing into it little by little. Um, the casework that I've done is uh, bearing positive results, and we just continue each week to work with the folks that are already doing this as they're wanting to push further in and ask more questions, make more contacts, and then people that are lining up to do this as they're booking appointments and wanting to have that experience, too. I, so, I just wanted to say, uh, for Dr. Smith, um, Dr. Smith was a jet marine jet fighter pilot, and he went back to school, and he became a psychotherapist, and he's and he's Mostly, I think he does more military than anybody else, as far as counseling and stuff. And and it's been just a it's, you know, you've been doing phenomenal stuff. You know, <clears throat> I've had this radio show um, back and forth now for about 15 years, and all I ever wanted was for people, especially in the military, to know that they're going to see each other again, that their loved ones, that there's no death, you don't die, you just go on. And so you're proving that, Jeff. Well, um, yeah, it's, I don't know if I've proven it, but we're certainly adding another layer of evidence or another layer of experience. And I, I love how Dr. Morse keeps bringing us back to um, the, the everyday person, because not everybody is going to go to combat. Not everybody is going to have a near-death experience. And so we... I love how he wants to maybe de-phenomenalize uh, or desensationalize what we're doing so that mm-hmm. the average person can experience a transformation as well. And I see that happening by just baby steps of people listening to a radio show like mm-hmm. this, yeah. reading books that have been written by it, um, listening to certain types of music that open us up to that. Because you know, Jeff, I, I don't, I don't, uh, for a fact, I don't think. I mean, what ten years ago, if you talked like this, they'd think it'd put you away somewhere. 
I mean, they really, we've come such a long, long ways because of the stuff you guys are doing. And Dr. Morris, I mean, you, you're the one who really discovered all this stuff. You know, Dr. Morris, I met him a few years back, and I sent a book he wrote to Oprah, and Oprah had him on twice, and Larry King had him on twice, and 2020 had him on, and Discovery Channel had him on. And uh, and I think at one time I was told that he sold um, Madison's Garden, Garden out in 15 minutes, is what I was told. So, um, I mean, here's somebody we're so pleased to have you a part of our, te- of our team, Dr. Morris. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that, uh, Joseph, you know, and I'm grateful for uh, all the support that you've given me over the years. And, and, and actually, uh, you sort of started me uh, down this road uh, in helping uh, with my first book being publicized. But I want to come back to what uh, Dr. Smith had to say. Uh, you know, it's been it's been 20, 30 years now um, since Raymond Moody wrote his book, uh, Life After Life and the scientific research that has gone into the near-death experience and that I'm only part of. You know, I've published articles in the American Medical Association's uh, pediatric journals, uh, published articles in The Lancet, uh, but many other scientists have also, uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson, uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson. Um, so many uh, scientists have shown that the near-death experience is, in fact, the dying experience. It's very real. So then the next step is to say, okay, so there is another reality that awaits us when we die. But that other reality seems to be intricately connected to this reality. And, uh, you know, we need to now, um, you know, understand, like in Sharon's experience of uh, her brothers uh, waiting for her, uh, after she died, those same brothers were watching over her while she was alive. Uh, yeah. and, you know, after her experience, she learned uh, that to, to hear certain sounds that are associated with angels. Uh, just as uh, I've learned, um, uh, I had a very dramatic experience uh, with my mom once, in uh, which uh, I was uh, very uh, oh just. Uh, just at a, a, a very crucial point in my life where I was crying out for help, and a dime appeared in a, in a place that there could be no dimes, you know, that there was no possibility of a, of a dime appearing. And, and yet uh, she appeared just to give me that, that, that nudge, that, that, you know, that, that message that you are loved. And, and that is what the near-death experience teaches us, that this world that we are... Uh, live in is a world that basically is made of unconditional love and that we're here to learn our lessons of love. And, and that's why I think that uh, it's so crucial that we see this uh, on the individual level, on the <clears throat> level of our ordinary lives. You know, what can we learn from the near-death experience? It, to me, it's not about waiting until what happens when we die. It's about how we can live our lives uh, more fully. And, and I think as the new year comes, uh, I, I'll just share uh, with the audience uh, something that uh, Dr. Smith told me yesterday when uh, he and I were uh, just uh, brainstorming about uh, uh, his new therapy. Uh, he told me, you know, what a comforting thought it is to know that as we go through our ordinary life, that we are surrounded by 
people that we love who passed, the spirit guides, for uh, lack of a better word, uh, that, you know, that these are things uh, that are, you know, that once were confined to just the New Age philosophy. Mm-hmm. But now we're learning that uh, uh, um, uh, abuse victims, uh, uh, military uh, um, trauma, stress. post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and, uh, you know, just the ordinary people uh, who, uh, who uh, you know, have no uh, underlying, uh, you know, one belief system or another. It doesn't matter what belief system you're in. But everyone, I think, is we're on the cusp of understanding uh, that we are spiritual beings having a very human experience. And we're embraced uh, by other spiritual beings as we go through this journey. And and I'd like to bump it back to Dr. Smith because I I just was so struck by what you said yesterday that, you know, that that we we all need to know that we are being watched over and assisted in our journey uh, by our loved ones. And Sharon Sharon had a um, a talk with, with Jesus and God, and God told her that you have no idea how much you are loved. Yes, we have no idea how much we're loved. Apparently, there's a great deal of work that takes place when we sleep each night through plans for what we're going to explore and experience the next day and all the coordination that has to be made amongst the uh, spirit guides or guardian angels with what interactions we're going to have as we create these challenges. Some people would call it conflict or contrast, but truly in order to experience forgiveness, we have to have somebody to forgive. Therefore, we have to have challenge and conflict and crisis and calamity. It's how we grow. It can't be any other way. And so we can look at these things. If we can make the transition from calling them bad and judging them, to going, oh, look, hey, here, here it is. It's showing up for me today. This is my next lesson. It's right in front of me. This really hard thing that I'm doing right now is my lesson. And I'm not going to drink it away. I'm not going to yell it away, scream it away, fight it away. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to approach it, evaluate it, ask for help, and just walk through it, just sit in it. And that's how we grow. And if we don't do that, then those things just keep lining up, and yes. they, we kind of stay in that same place. I, I'm, so told, I'm told from a lot of people I've talked with that you also do, you go back to school in heaven, that there's many, many classes you can take. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, I, I do know that. And, you know, yes, I have sir. to tell you a quick story. I was at, uh, I was a janitor at the, at uh, Woodby Island Naval Air Station, and I was very close with friends with the doctors. And I remember that was when Vietnam happened and we had prisoners. We had two things happen. One guy who was shot down and he he come home to find his wife was dying of cancer and he was just distraught because he had a couple of three kids and here he's a cripple and and he was just it was a lieutenant commander and she was a Christian and she was okay with dying and there was not a problem. So she talked him into going to um uh, there was a woman, I've forgotten now her name, she was from Pittsburgh. 
where she did uh, meetings and stuff, and she actually healed people through God. It was one of the few that really did. And so, of course, they called him on stage, and he didn't want to go, and his wife said, and he only went because she made him go, because she thought, he thought, well, I'll, I'll go because she'll get healed or whatever. As it turned out, he went on stage, and he had his his two canes and his crippled legs, and he went up there, and he walked off the stage, guys. I was at the hospital the next day when he came in, and his legs, they took x-rays, and his legs were straight. Wow. I mean, I saw that wow. with my own That's... eyes. And so, and, and here he didn't believe this. He didn't want to go, but there you go. Catherine Kuhlman it was. Catherine Kuhlman was a great healer in the old days. And then I also want to share, share this with when the Vietnam uh, guys came back from, the prisoners came back from Vietnam and they were checked out in the hospital, you know, they got their medals ripped off and they took their Bibles and burned them and they, but they allowed them to read a story about John the Liberton Seagull. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know who, how many people, how many of you guys have read that book, but what it's, what it's about is what we're talking about right now. It's talking about lessons, coming back and learning and re, re, relearning and, and, and to strive to perfection, to be like one like the Father. So it's really, um, it's really a, this is what they say. We're allowed to read a story about the birds, and that's what kept us in one piece. How exciting was that? Very exciting. Yeah, that's very exciting. I'd like to uh, just to piggyback on that whole concept of lessons and bring it back to something uh, that Dr. Smith said is, uh, and also that uh, Sharon had said earlier, that that issue of non-judgment, that, that, we, that we have to understand that ultimately this reality is a non-judgmental reality. And, and I'd like to frame this um, with, with something fairly dramatic. Uh, you know, I think, as you guys know, I work with a lot of uh, ex-offenders. And uh, I work with a gentleman. Uh, he was uh, the CEO of a uh, uh, aviation company uh, in Dover, Delaware. And he did a lot of uh, military work and uh, did, has a lot of uh, classified projects. Um, you know, he was a, a millionaire, uh, a very successful businessman. Uh, but one night uh, he got drunk and was driving and uh, unfortunately killed an 84-year-old woman, uh, uh, ran her over uh, in, in his uh, drunken, uh, you know, in, in his drunken state. And I asked him, you know, how did he live with the guilt of that? How did he deal with with, you know, how does he move forward in his life, you know, having uh, committed uh, such a crime? And he told me that for the first uh, several years, this was very, very difficult for him. And he was just filled with, with shame and self-loathing and felt uh, that uh, he, he could not possibly uh, move forward in his life and came to the point where he was going to kill himself. And actually, uh, to the point where he put uh, the barrel of a gun into his mouth and, and just felt, you know, I can't go any further in life. And then he told me, he said, it was at that moment that I felt God touch me. 
And God told me and made me understand that this was part of my spiritual journey, that this, you know, horrific crime that I committed was, in fact, part of my lessons of love, that I had something to learn from this. And he was able to pull the barrel of the gun out of his mouth, and then he was able to move forward with his life and uh, start to uh, do uh, good things and to try to somehow uh, make amends uh, for what he had done. But it, it took him coming to that moment of non-judgment. And, you know, we don't really think of, uh, you know, when we talk about lessons of love, we have to remember <laughs> that we're talking, just as uh, Dr. Smith had said earlier, that means that we have to uh, commit crimes, do horrible things, um, act in ways uh, which are seemingly unforgivable, uh, certainly, uh, I myself uh, have uh, done things uh, which I'm horribly ashamed of, and, and yet we have to somehow have the courage to understand. That, uh, yeah, these are our lessons of love. That, that, that when we're talking about lessons of love, we're not talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about some pretty hard and heavy lessons. You know, these aren't, aren't just uh, uh, simple things, uh, you know, falling in love when you're a teenager. These are trying to understand, uh, you know, uh, uh, why we uh, do the things that we do and how we can uh, move forward. And, and I wonder if uh, Dr. Smith could uh, comment on that a bit, because I know that you, that's, that's a lot of the work that you do. It's helping people to come to terms with, um, you know, the, the, the less than uh, uh, per, uh, perfect people. Uh, and, you know what uh, you this know, is all about, Doctor, is what I've learned in all my experience with this, and I don't mean to take Jess' time away, but it's forgiveness. You must yet forgive yourself first. And then you have to forgive others. I would absolutely agree with that, 100%. You know, I mean, you really, um, you know, I had, I had my friend Maria Dancing Heart, who Sharon knows very well, and I don't know if Jeff was on the show with us when she was with us. And she came here, and she, you know, she wrote a book, Last Adventure of Life, and she was a, of a, a minister who who was a um, who would go to hospice minister and she was wonderful and we became wonderful friends and she came here because of me and um she um we did seminars we did radio together we did book signings and then she got killed crossing the street a couple about another about a year ago and she sent us a note from heaven and what she said was i am free i no longer have to stress of time I am, love is all there is. Thank you for sharing life and love with me. Um, And she says, um, thank you very much. And she wrote that in Japanese because she was raised by missionaries. I mean, um, love is all there is. And and, and part of that is forgiveness as well. So the ways that we love are varied and widespread and one of the things i believe that the radio show allows is for some people it's an introduction into these concepts for other people it's reinforcement of the things that we're talking about but it's creating a community and it's creating a a oneness of like-mindedness 
that we can continue to just be encouraged ourselves to keep moving forward in this direction, as well as other people who know that there are folks studying, applying, experimenting, developing all of these new technologies or these new therapies or new ways of looking at things. But I do see that the the aspect of learning uh, is is what we're doing right now. We're in the mode of teaching or sharing. So people on the receiving end of this, uh, they don't have to have a near-death experience for this to be something that's useful to them uh, and very applicable. to. It's a part of it. It's a phase in the overall walk that we're doing, the walk that we're traveling. You know, all I can tell you is if I hadn't had this training, like my, when my mother left me and passed away, I would have been in some place going, what the hell just happened? I mean, because of this and because I never thought about I'd ever need this for myself. I always, uh, my goal was always to help somebody else, but boy, am I glad this happened to me because I really, I mean, my mother's with me just every single solitary day, and she guides me, and she and I feel her love and her her spirit right with me, as I know Sharon does hers, and I know as well as Dr. Morris feels her, his mother. I mean, how special is that? Right. Absolutely. Right. <clears throat> One of the things now, that, that I, again, I, 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 uh, Go ahead. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Smith, if you would comment uh, on your work with helping people to rewrite their life scripts. Because I think that that's part and parcel uh, essential in helping people right. to come to terms uh, with their own uh, you know, behaviors that they may be ashamed of, uh, behaviors uh, that uh, I guess the, the Buddhists would call unskillful, uh, you know, things, things that, you know, the wrong things we've done in life. And yet right. so often those things seem to be linked to that inner voice that says you're a failure that inner voice that says you are not loved, that, that inner voice that, that has survived trauma. You know, a, a, as you know, Dr. Smith, hurt people hurt people. And uh, yes, we do. tremendous success <laughs> in helping people to rewrite those uh, scripts, that, you know, so that they're no longer hurt and so that they don't have to hurt other people then. And I wonder if you it, could comment on that a bit. Oh, sure. I'd love to. You know, the, so the basic premise is, that we are operating in one of three primary roles. One would be a victim, another role would be perpetrator, and the third role would be the observer. And we're actually most able and do the best playing the role of the victim. And throughout all of poetry and classical writing and stories, there's always somebody who's picking on somebody else, and it's uh, it's unjust and you know, we root for the underdog and, you know, all these sorts of things. But truly, if we identify as the victim, then we just go through life one experience after the next, after the next, after the next, continuing to be victimized. And if we don't like that, then we push to the other side and we become the bully. And then we just switch to interacting with folks in our life as either pushing them or them pushing us or they slap us, we slap them back, you know, metaphorically speaking. And when we can step out of that dynamic, that dance that we do, and we can step over to be the observer and go, oh, isn't that interesting how I've been believing this about myself, this core belief that I'm not important and I, my proof is, you know, dad left when I was three or whatever. 
and uh, you know, his mom and dad were more interested in their drinking than they were with me. So I got my girlfriend pregnant at 17, and blah blah blah. So you know, none of those things are true. They're just the story that we wrote that supports the script that we're living by. So we're the only one that can write our script, and we write it sometimes in an indelible pen. And when we can put that sharpie down, that indelible pen down, and we can begin to write in pencil then it gives us the opportunity to start to erase the things that we've written that aren't true and begin to write the things that are true. Like we're here to experience contrast. We are here to experience conflict. We are here to experience challenge. In Buddhism, they call that suffering. And I never liked that word because it's, it puts us right back in the role of being a victim. And I just, I refuse to be a victim. I love to see it as training. Yeah, and that's my that's my Beautiful. military background, my said. Marine Corps background. It's just that hey, today is a really tough training day. You know, when I was in the infantry or a sniper, there were some days when it was rainy and it was wet and cold and miserable, or we're crawling, crawling through the mud and whatever. And it was like those were really, really harsh training conditions. But they were actually the best training conditions because if you can operate and be successful in those conditions, you can do that anywhere at any time. So the harder it is, the better it is. There's actually a passage in the Bible, I've never really understood it, and my interpretation is that there's somewhere in the Bible that says that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I've always tried to, like, what the heck does that mean? And I think in our society, we think of people the most successful, let's say the Bill Gates and the Oprah Winfrey's, that they're first here on heaven, or on earth, and therefore they'll be first in heaven. And I kind of think it's just the opposite. I think the harder it is for people here on Earth, the more rewards or the more lessons and the more karma they get cleared, the more something that happens when we get in between our lives uh, in that next realm, that uh, the harder it is here, the, if you have a birth defect, if you have a mental disorder, if you have you know, alcoholic parents, and that shows up in your genetics as well, that and and you just you're doing your best to try to be content, to try to love, to try to laugh more than you cry. Um, that's that's what we're here to do. We're not all here to be Bill Gates or Oprah. Um, we're here to do our best with what we have to work with and try to be more of an observer than a perpetrator or a victim. I hope that wasn't too long and- of an answer to your question. Dr. Yeah, that was a wonderful. Oh, that was a wonderful answer. Uh, that, that was so that because that just makes me uh, then want to ask you another question: is if you could <laughs> talk about how you have um, used afterlife communications uh, to help people to rewrite their scripts. Sure. I, I think that you know that 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 brings us full circle around to our uh, the, the beginning of this hour, in which Sharon told us of her experience in which she actually experienced uh, her brothers uh, up in heaven, and that you've had, uh, you know, these these helpers, uh, for lack of a better word, can actually help us to rewrite our scripts, is what I understand from talking to you. Sure. Well, oftentimes, one of the specialties in my practice is helping people resolve traumas they've been through. So I consider myself to be a trauma specialist, But oftentimes, in my own humanity, in my own limited wisdom, I'm left without answers that people are looking for to why did this happen to me or what is the meaning of of this. And honestly, I 
there are times when I don't know, many times that I don't know. And I can do something cliche like saying, you know, it's for a reason and, you know, we don't understand it yet, but we will someday. And people really don't want to hear that. So I've been so excited in the last couple of years when I can invite entities that are no longer limited by the physical body and they are with us, but just not in physical form. And they have access to this supreme consciousness or super consciousness, uh, the signal line, prana, the source, whatever you want to call it. I love inviting them into my therapy practice to participate with my patients to get these answers. And they always show up. It is amazing. It just, it, I'm getting goosebumps again just talking about Is how that what you did when you invited the sergeant? in yes and he was sure and he was upset because of course he lost his comrades right he felt responsible for yeah. one of his members in his platoon for being left behind and got shot in the head by the taliban and uh, he actually accompanied the body home and had christmas with the guy's family and just you know he just felt so responsible for this so when we actually brought uh I, I almost mentioned the guy's name, and I shouldn't over the air, the, the deceased person. But uh, when we brought him into the counseling realm, he's like, he wasn't upset. It was He just said, this was my time. This is how long I was supposed to go here. It was an agreement that I made before I came here. I'm not upset. Please go on with your life. You're not responsible. It's not your fault. And that helped him so much. I could have I could have said all those things as a therapist, and they would have been true. But nevertheless, not nearly as powerful as coming from the the image, the effigy, the wow. the holographic, whatever it is that the person is seeing. Because, you know, they have their eyes closed. It's very much like a hypnotic trance, and it's very very real. There's always tears that are involved, tears of joy, tears of gratitude. It affects me as well. So it's, uh, I feel so relieved as a therapist that I'm not having to do all that work myself. Of course, I still want the patient to write me the check. But you're saying you're saying that you're a facilitator of the process. Yes. And yes. It, yeah, you know, and when you bring up the question of, you know, are these experiences that, that uh, you're seeing in the office real or not? Well, we know from the, uh, the science of the near death experience that they're real. Uh, I think that's one thing that uh, I hope every listener uh, uh, understands. You know, I know that all of us do is the science of the near-death experience over the last 30 or 40 years is so solid that now is the time where we need to start moving forward. You know, that we, we've, we have to go from the wow to the how, and how can we now start to yeah. learn uh, uh, from uh, what science ha- has told us is real. Uh, but I wanted to uh, a- ask you yet another question, uh, Dr. Smith. Earlier you had said that uh, sometimes uh, friends appear uh, in these counseling sessions, but sometimes foes appear. And, and I wonder if you could comment on that. You know, how, how could that possibly be uh, uh, helpful to, ha- you know, to, ha- to have one of our, our foes appear during uh, the, the counseling session? Uh, wouldn't that be traumatic? Or? 
Well, you, one, one would think, but that, that isn't actually how they show up. So, again, their, their effigy or their image or their likeness appears, but they're in a divine state of forgiveness and love. And it's just it's so evident that they're not, they're not caught in that conflict of perpetrator-victim any longer. And they're saying, I forgive you. This was an agreement we made before we came here, and we've played it out and you're to learn from it, and you had a very, very, very powerful experience, and it's time to let it go and move Jeffrey, on. Jeffrey, I remember you told me that story about that girl who her sister was committed suicide because her uncle raped her. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and she, um, and you had her in the session, and she, and you, all of a sudden she went back to the house, and the uncle was there, and the whole story. Right. Yeah, that was that's a great example. One that I use many, you know, I'll probably run into it once or twice a month are women who have chosen to abort their babies and just are racked with guilt and shame over that, whether it's months later or years later. And to be able to invite that soul that incarnated into that baby's body to show up and <laughs> they're not upset. They're not upset. They're not holding a grudge. They're they're free. They're and in some cases they've already in, reincarnated into something else, which is another kind of a mind trip that they aren't just stuck somewhere in some domain in this little tiny baby body or almost developed baby body. That and I don't know that you could we could go anywhere in this conversation at this point, but it's just fascinating. Whatever does show up shows up in a way that is transformative and helps the person begin to forgive themselves and move forward. Well, I wonder we if, you, it, if you could, uh, could you, could you continue on with that theme and, uh, you know, talk about the uh, victims of trauma, you know, uh, uh, people who have been a victims of abuse or uh, you, you had shared with me that sometimes uh, you actually uh, invite the perpetrator uh, into the session. Well, we oh, did that, know, didn't what, we, what? Jeff? Remember you were telling sure. me about the woman and, what was it, 20, um, Catalina? Remember uh, that, that story about, about the woman in, um, in Catalina's story? I'm sorry, Joseph, that one's not coming back to my mind. But just it's as okay. a general, I mean, you see them every day. Thing. But I remember you told me a, a story <laughs> of, a, of a woman who was traumatized because her uncle raped her, and mm -hmm. then she, her sister, had committed suicide. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. I mean, this is a great, great yeah, story. Years back. Right. And the, the um, uncle had passed on, and we asked him to show up, and he confessed. He made a confession. So this was like a family secret that uh, this uncle had molested several people in the family. He was extremely wealthy, so the family was uh, caught in a bind between benefiting from the summer mansion in Catalina and still using it and his estate and all, and still at the same time knowing that he had, uh, you know, harmed a variety of different family members. So there was this undercover secret that this woman boldly stepped into in my practice, and we invited uh, the uncle to participate. He made a full confession, and he had talked about uh, you know, af after the confession phase happens, and I let that sink in with the person, and there is an opportunity for them to forgive, 
uh, not to forget because the scars the scars remain, but the pain in the injury leaves. So we always have the scar, but the pain goes away, which is really a nice metaphor to use. We all have scars, but if they don't the physical pain part doesn't hurt so much anymore for the emotional pain. But it was wonderful to see this uh, his uncle then talk about his pain in how he was victimized in his own perpetration. And, you know, because the things that I know that I've done in life that I've hurt others, I hurt myself and I hurt somebody else. And he was actually able to forgive himself and then share how he himself was molested as a little boy. And that always helps somebody. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't excuse it by any means, but it certainly does uh, help in the forgiveness process when we understand that, as Dr. Moore said earlier, hurting people hurt others. So hurting people were obviously hurt by others as well, and it just gets passed along. I feel like I'm rambling at this point, but that was a good... You know, I, we well, have you're, about, you're we not. Have about I, three I've minutes a, left. Uh, I've got to jump right in, and, and you're not rambling at all, um, Jeff. You're going right to the very heart of, of what I'll uh, try to share in two minutes. What you're saying has enormous practical implications uh, that I have just started to work with uh, in working with ex-offenders. Because uh-huh. these are men who primarily have had shattered lives and have had severe trauma, and yet they have committed, you know, horrific crimes. Uh, so this kind of work doesn't excuse their crime, uh, but the whole point is to then save their life and to prevent recidivism, prevent them from committing further crimes. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is exactly what you're saying. Uh, the work that I've done uh, uses more of a meditative state, uh, going right into that uh, place uh, that Sharon talked about, that place of unconditional love and non-judgment. And then frequently I'll teach them to remote view because uh, sometimes they, they don't believe themselves, you know, that, that, they, that there is a safe place in the world. Uh, so uh, if, I, if they successfully remote view, uh, that'll often uh, flip the switch. Uh, you know, and, I do and, uh, want to do this too, yeah. Doctor. Maybe one of our shows we will have a session of meditation, which I think would be wonderful. Absolutely. And, and then I have seen remarkable transformations, just as uh, Dr. Smith has described. Uh, I worked uh, with a uh, neo-Nazi skinhead uh, who uh, was uh, really a vicious predator. And uh, after four or five months of working with him, uh, he uh, became extremely empathetic. He understood that he uh, was part of a greater humanity and uh, told me with tears in his eyes that he didn't want to hurt anybody anymore. Well, and that kind of transformation is, is, is very powerful, and, and it's, frankly, in this uh, era of mass incarceration, it's what we need. So, so you weren't rambling, Dr. Smith. You were speaking right to a powerful point uh, that, you know, the, your, your therapy has implications uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder, has implications to prevent recidivism. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's fraud-based. You know, guys, what, what I want to say is when it says all said and done and we have a life review, we're asked three things. We're asked how much have we loved, and we're asked what we have done for others, and finally, forgiveness. Right. Those and are the three things that we're most, really asked. Most of I, us can't, would I cannot thank you enough for joining us. 
few people who have listened to this great show. Um, I just heard from the producer, and he said it was a phenomenal show, and it's going to be on podcast. Um, I, I can't thank you enough, Jeffrey, my wonderful friend, Dr. Morris. I love you. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, it's thank been you a great for having show. me. Yeah. It's been a great show. Thank you and, for this uh, opportunity. And, thank you for this opportunity, Joseph. Yeah, you yes, betcha. We you. have so much to share. And I just, you know, I want everybody to know that life, there, there is no death, and we do go on, and and we're going to keep on talking about this till we did it, till everybody understands that um, all there is is love. Right. If there's a final thing I could pitch in off of what you said about those three questions we get asked in our life review, when we are asked, how much did you love, how much did you forgive, most people think about how much did we love others and how much did we forgive others. But really, if we could turn that back to ourself, how much did we love ourselves? How much did we forgive ourselves? That's the real thing that we need to work on. And to learn to accept the love that others have for us. Yes. Sometimes yes. that's the hardest uh, challenge of all. Yep. Well, this is what this is Joseph Vardy presents. Thank you, Dr. Melvin Morris. Thank you, Jeffrey Smith. Thank you, Sharon Milliman. Be sure and get her book in Amazon. A song in the wind. God bless you guys. We'll talk to you in two weeks. All righty. Bye, Bye now. Okay. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Bye. Yeah.